Welcome to this afternoon's China Research Group event. We are extremely lucky to have three fantastic uh, speakers this afternoon, and I'm going to allow them to introduce themselves in a moment. They're going to speak for three to five minutes each, and then we're going to take questions. Today's session is about NATO for trade. Now, this is, of course, building on many of the questions that we've seen emerge over recent years as to the changes in the World Trade Organization, China's position in obeying or not some of those rules and the way in which perhaps uh, free countries can defend themselves uh, against uh, the implications of other elements. Now, without further ado, I'm going to ask Rob, would you introduce yourself and kick off? Uh, thank you so much. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here. <clears throat> I'm Rob Atkinson. I'm president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. It's a think tank in Washington, D.C. We worked on the China issue for over a decade. I was co-chair in the Obama White House of the U.S.-China Innovation Task Force. Um, so let me just make a few overarching comments. Uh, first is maybe just to set the, the base so we can hopefully all agree on this. Um, the WTO allows for sin, but it doesn't allow for unrepentant sinners. If you sin in the WTO, you're supposed to either seek absolution or you're supposed to hide it. Um, China is outside the scope of this religion. They're unrepentant innovation mercantilists. They're unrepentant trade sinners. They don't even pretend. Uh, China, as a recent article I wrote in the Journal of International Economy, I argued looking at an article that um, it was written uh, over over 50 years ago on comparing, talking about Germany as a power trader uh, from 1900 to 1950. That's what China is. They're a power trader. They're using trade and commercial uh, advantages to gain commercial and military advantages. Uh, China has the right to do that, but they don't have the right to do it and be in the WTO. The WTO gives you protection against other countries taking action against you but only if you live up to those responsibilities. China is not gonna change. We learned that in the Trump administration. Uh, China is gonna to continue to do what it's gonna do. We can only control what the damage and the effects of that. As structured, the WTO will not and cannot bring China into the rules-based trading system. We should try to have WTO reform, but it's fundamentally incapable. The WTO was designed around rules-based countries where you can look at a rule, you can identify it, and you can adjudicate against it. China isn't dumb enough to put most of their egregious practices in rules. They just practice them. And also, if you bring cases against the WTO, if you're a company, which is how cases are brought usually, they will retaliate against you. Um, so there's really two problems, and I'll just wrap up. The trade itself, how, how China is manipulating industries like semiconductors, solar panels, high-speed rail, biotechnology, robotics, you name it, AI, in an unfair way. Uh, and the second is how they're using their ability to help other countries or hurt other countries through trade as a, essentially a diplomatic weapon to cow its adversaries into silence. And we've seen that with what they've tried to do with Australia, when Australia had the audacity to bring up the fact that perhaps COVID was responsible, China was responsible for COVID. So there are really a couple of things we can do. One is um, we need a new, in my opinion, we need a new free trading block uh, that only allows uh, the religious, if you will, to join. Uh, and doesn't allow China to join. And we should make sure that inside that block, the China exports in key areas where they've been advantaged by unfair practices like computer chips, like COMAC and aviation, like drugs, all gained unfair advantages that they just don't be, they don't have access to our markets. But the second, and I'll just close here, is we need a NATO for trade. My colleague Clyde Prestowitz and I wrote a piece for the Washington Post about a year ago arguing that what the problem right now is, is China picks off its adversaries through wolf warrior diplomacy and it cows them into submission. That's not a good thing for the world. We need an open and honest debate about what's going on in other countries and we shouldn't allow China to cow and threaten individual nations. The way to protect that, just the way it is to protect against bullies in, in, in an elementary school is you have to work together. You have to say, we're not gonna, if, if somebody th threatens one of our friends, we're gonna support them. And that's why we need what I've called the DATO, a democratically allied trade organization. 
which is committed to protecting and coming to the aid of any member that's been threatened by Chinese wolf warrior uh, diplomacy. So thank you so much, and I'll look forward to the conversation. It was always going to happen. Thank you very much indeed for uh, uh, speaking to us on that. I'm, you've already raised many questions in my mind, including the feasibility, not just the desirability, but we're going to come back to that in questions. Agata, over to you. Please introduce yourself and then uh, the floor is yours. Perfect. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, everyone, for having me today. Um, I'm an associate director at the Rhodium Group and I work um, very, um, very intensely these days on potential for EU-US alignment on China um, and alignment of policies uh, in the economic realm in particular. And so I want to say a few words about uh, first from uh, reacting from Rob's excellent paper that was um, food for thought for this discussion today uh, about a trade NATO. And what's interesting is that typically in a security alliance like NATO, you want your competitors out. But in a commercial alliance, you would want your competitors in because you want to change them through trade and you want to change them through engagement. Now, now, obviously, that hasn't worked so well with China for two main reasons, uh, Beijing's unwillingness to change uh, in a more compatible direction, and then uh, the nature of the institution, uh, which is, of course, one country, one vote, and extremely hard to reform, extremely hard to, hard to move, move forward. And so it means something else needs to happen. Uh, and so I'm glad we're speaking about the alternative here. Now, my proposal for that is just a little bit different from Rob's. Um, and I would want to start a debate already um, by proposing a two-track approach, actually. Um, because I think some action is better taken jointly. And some action is actually better done in parallel, but with communication. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. On the parallel activity, I think what the WTO shows um, and the difficulty of the WTO to be relevant for China um, comes from its multilateral nature. It comes from the way it's structured, of course. Uh, and it comes from the fact that sometimes uh, smaller scale, more localized autonomous action can be more efficient. And we're seeing the EU, and especially the past few years, um, and it's one of many examples, but the EU developed a number of instruments from a foreign subsidies instrument to a potentially an IPI instrument on uh, international procurement instrument that I think are actually good answers because it allows for more nimble case filling, narrower targeting of concern, um, and it allows for issues beyond trade to be covered. And there's so much more than trade that needs to be dealt with when it comes to China. Um, and so I actually like the, uh, the, the spread and kind of localized approach. Now, to make it work, what's super, super important is that it can't be done alone and it requires communication. Um, and so not so much a, a trade NATO, but a very open communicative uh, parallel play is what we need to do with three goals. Uh, for countries like the EU, for countries like the UK to make very clear what the instruments they're developing are for and making sure their allies and their partners are happy and, and, and comfortable at least with it. Um, see if there's any potential for harmonization and potential for interoperability between those instruments. If you have an FDI regime, FDI screening regime, I've got one, um, they need to work so that there isn't loopholes in the middle. And so actually having a lot of communication, a lot of joints, uh, discussion about what those instruments look like, but the application implementation would be at a more localized, more uh, limited level. Um, and then a few things you can do jointly, and I'm not, um, I'm not denying that some things can be done jointly, but um, a few things that can be done jointly beyond this parallel play. Um, and that's first and foremost, having a common definition of what China, the China problem is, because I think the WTO's definition of what is problematic in trade is just outdated. We need to go beyond trade. We need to go beyond subsidies. We need to go beyond IP theft just to tackle the problem, which is the state being at the table of economic policy making, uh, very close to OECD's definition of competitive neutrality. And I think everyone needs to agree um, with some definition of what the problem is. We don't have that at the moment, and we can do that together. Something else we can do together is info gathering for cases uh, and case filling on subsidies, on IP theft, on um, all kinds of non-competitive behavior. Um, the third thing we need to do jointly is solidarity. And this is what Rob, you were pointing to, having countries move together to avoid coercion um, as much as possible. And it doesn't need to always be the same grouping. It can be a flexible geometry, but at least there being some level of solidarity. And then some limited but important joint action on R&D, for example, and especially foundational R&D. 
So that's, you know, the, the, the main argument here. The last thing I want to say, and uh, I'll wrap us up here, is that we want those measures to be effective and we want them to be fiscally responsible. Uh, we do not want to copy China. There's a strong belief at Rhodium and certainly in myself that a lot of the industrial policy China is putting together at the moment is wasteful. Um, and so we need to have the right barriers around ourselves that within them, we can have fair competition and we can remain true to our principles and, and, and values there. So that's the first thing. We need to make the problem smaller. Not everything linked to China is problematic. Not everything linked to trade is problematic. And so if we pick the right sectors, we pick the right battles, uh, then we can, we can do it more efficiently. Uh, and then we do not want to play against the lie. So any, any move we put on the table, industrial policy, R&D, uh, tax cut, things like this, we need to be mindful of other, um, other partners that we want to work with. Um, so I'll wrap, this, uh, I'll wrap this here. Um, thanks for the invitation again. Agatha, thank you very much indeed. Uh, as always, a very, very clear uh, development of the theme and some uh, excellent follow-on points that I'm, again, going to come to for questions. Now, before I go to Reinhardt, please don't forget, questions in uh, the bottom, and we will come to them uh, very shortly. Reinhardt, my dear friend and colleague, over to you. Thank you, Tom, for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to join this uh, conversation. My name is Reinhard Butikofer. I'm a member of the European Parliament and uh, I'm, among other responsibilities, chairing the China delegation of the European Parliament. Uh, let me start by um, just simply stating that I share probably 95% of Rob's diagnosis, but I don't think I share more than 5% of his prescription. Um, my opposition against the idea of an economic NATO starts with the philosophy. As China is trying to play a more expansive role and trying to take more control of the international arena, I'm not sure it's a smart strategy approach if we say, okay, let's withdraw behind the newly built walls of our trade castle. And we align between the US and the UK and uh, the EU, hopefully. I mean, that, that in itself is a tall order as we've seen uh, just recently, both in the UK, EU and in the uh, EU, US relations. But taking this, this uh, with a little bit of wishful thinking, taking this as a, a, a real option, the problem I see is that we would ignore the rest of the world. We would kind of render the rest of the world uh, to the Chinese. Um, I don't think that in a complicated world like the one in which we're living, there can possibly be a ma magic wand with which you transform uh, the, the um, diverse political challenges with one fell swoop. I, I don't think that works. And um, the, um, the attraction of the title that says economic NATO um, is also, I think, a bit misguided because um, the, the relevance of NATO and the stabilizing power of NATO comes with the automaticity of Article 5. I can't possibly imagine how an economic NATO would have a, a functional equivalent of an Article 5. Um, I, I think that's, uh, and Agatha pointed to that already, uh, that's a, a different logic that prevails in the economic sphere and in the uh, security, uh, security sphere. And I also don't think that we have to jump to such a um, complete new start. I mean, there, there are ways of, um, of working together um, for instance, the European Union or the UK for that purpose could adopt similar legislation uh, to the uh, recently passed Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act in the US. We could agree on similarly devised anti-coercion instruments. Um, we could um, pursue um, measures with regard to 
um, procurement processes that create some common uh, pressure on China. Uh, Agatha has mentioned some of the instruments that we're pursuing in the EU, and some of them clearly lend themselves to policy coordination uh, between the US and the UK and many other, many other partners. Um, so I think um, we should um, take the plausible next steps first before trying to imagine what uh, we might want to do uh, five bridges down uh, our travel. Um, I also believe that it would be um, not very, um, not very um, effective if we basically gave up on WTO because of all the weaknesses it has. We've already run a similar experience, uh, experiments or a similar experiment with the uh, United Nations. Uh, the US have withdrawn from the Human Rights Council. The US had withdrawn from WHO. None of these steps did have any positive effects. They only ended up giving more sway, giving more leverage to the Chinese because we were not there, the US was not there to push back more effectively. So uh, I think even, even from a, um, a, a, a very pragmatic angle, we, we have to continue working, uh, working on that front. And then um, one point that I, I think we should uh, talk more about is a positive agenda for the world. The idea of an economic NATO is an idea that tries to save the future for the UK, the EU, and the US. But I feel that the logic that President Biden advocated at the uh, recent G7 summit is much superior to that. Biden uh, projected a built back better world logic, which means we offer a vision for the future of our globe uh, to international partners beyond our own shores that is able to compete with a vision that China is trying to enforce uh, with, with their Belt and Road and what, what have you. So I think uh, instead of withdrawing behind our own walls, we should um, be more outgoing and, and invest into connectivity strategies, into, into the uh, the international infrastructure investment initiatives that, uh, that we have uh, ignored for too long and uh, play an offensive game, not just defend our own backs. And the last point, very simply, um, there is a very strong argument in favor of having more alignment between democracies when China goes for, in one case, Australia, in the other case, Norway, couple of years ago or, or Sweden or any other. Um, but I think this is not a trade issue. This is a political issue. And the answer to the trade coercion that China tries to um, uh, pursue against Australia need not be a trade answer. It should be a political answer. Well, I have to say, I'm, I really enjoyed that. That's uh... That's three perspectives uh, and uh, three extremely challenging ones. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this proceeds because I'm going to, I'm certainly not going to try and shape the debate. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw some questions in and I'd be very grateful for your uh, perspectives back. I mean, if I can go straight back to you, perhaps, Rob, just quickly and say, uh, Reinhardt suggested effectively uh, that uh, some of the sort of NATO for trade uh, aspects or, or comments. Uh, are a little bit defensive uh, and they leave effectively a lot of the world open or rather abandoned to uh, other influences. And this is, this is a real challenge to the principle uh, that we many of us have, have set out. And so I'd be very grateful for your response to it. And then Agatha, I'll come to you in a second. Yeah, so it's possible that Reinhardt and I do disagree on 95% of it. It's also possible that he has misinterpreted much of what I've said. I think it's probably the latter. Just to be clear, we shouldn't abandon the WTO, as Agatha rightly pointed out. It's a very weak institution. It has its limits. 
but certainly we should work. And I, I keep hearing Europe saying they want to reform the WTO. I, I'm looking forward to the day when they finally actually do something. Um, but we, we should all work together to reform the WTO and to make it stronger. No question about that. We should not abandon the WTO. We should also have our own global Build Back Better initiatives, by the way, which I think should be in partnership. I think Europe and America should do this together. So none of what I'm saying is to say we should behind, be hide behind our walls, but, but Reinhardt's notion somehow that we would go behind our walls. The, the right analogy is we wanna develop an anti-mercantilist missile defense system. So we're not hiding behind our walls. What we're doing is we're defending ourselves from attacks. When China puts in $180 billion into their semiconductor industry, that's not trade, that's not the market, that's an attack. And so we need a way to defend ourselves against those attacks. When they steal our intellectual property, weaponize it, give it to their own companies, and then attack our companies, that's an attack. Fighting back against that, even by restricting those Chinese exports, is not protectionism. So what I've argued all along is what we need are two additional entities, if you will. One would be essentially a TPP transatlantic alliance. So take the TPP countries, TPP needs to be a stronger agreement. We never should have left it, but even with it, it should have been stronger. Bring in Europe, bring in the Commonwealth countries. And that's really the, the kind of gold standard new agreement. And anybody can join that as long as they obey the certain rules and have the certain framework. China can't do that because they're just never gonna be able to do it. So I think we need to have another institution. Finally, DATO or the defense, uh, or sort of the democracy allied trade organization is not to adjudicate trade barriers. It's not about that at all. That's what this new TPP transatlantic alliance agenda organization be. DATO is much different and that's really to respond in real time to Chinese uh, wolf warrior aggression that cows countries all around the world, particularly small and mid-sized countries and it makes them agents of Chinese totalitarianism. And we can just say, oh, sure, well, we'll, we'll, we'll let these countries just fight their own battle. And we know what the response is gonna be. And we shouldn't walk away from them. We should say, we are an Article Five alliance with you. If there's an attack on you, it's an attack on us, we'll stand up for you. Look, let's be real. Germany doesn't wanna do that. Let's be real. Germany does not wanna do that because Germany's afraid of losing its auto exports to, to China. It's time that Germany stood up for free trade, for democracy, for human rights. And the only way that's gonna, we're gonna be able to do that is if countries like Germany join in countries that put those values at the top of the agenda. Now we're gonna come back. I can, uh, I can see this is gonna be an entertaining session. So uh, please. It will be, yeah. I do say. <laughs> it it's about time for Germany to stand up for democracy. That's against China. Yes, gentlemen, gentlemen, I really cherish It's about time that you put- Gentlemen, gentlemen, I'm going to ask you, just give, give us a moment, give us a moment. Agatha is also here and also has a right to speak. So gentlemen, just give us a moment. I'm enjoying this very much, no worries. <laughs> Over to you, Agatha. Did you have, no, but did you have a question, Tom? Or did, sure, look, my yeah. question from all of this was, um, there's various of us who've looked at the way that the World Trade Organization was formed. It was created, as we know, out of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which was really created as a trading block aligning with, roughly aligning with NATO membership. And we saw various of those countries getting swallowed up into the Soviet uh, bloc very early on. Indeed, the Czech Czechoslovakia, as it then was, of course, was one of those countries that was an early signatory of the GATT and then was brought into uh, the Soviet bloc. So looking at uh what the you know when the ga when gat was so successful that world trade was a, a given and we created the world trade organization what are the ways in which we could look at the principles that don't see as reinhardt puts it parts of the parts of the world being abandoned to china but do achieve what rob as rob puts it the defense the legitimate defense of our economies uh, against pretty unorthodox, I'm being very polite here, but pretty unorthodox trade practices that are forms of dumping and forms of coercion. Um, if I, I'm being as polite as I can about trade policy, but uh, I, could, I, could, I could be much more harsh on it. Agatha, what do you think? How do, how do we build this up so that we don't exclude, but actually we, uh, we make it inclusive? And, and what is the Article 5 equivalent? Hmm. Um, that, that's a good question. Um, well, 
The first thing to say is that I think you can actually achieve a de facto trade NATO um, or a de facto uh, extended TPP, new WTO, so to say, uh, by having the US, or, well, North America, the whole of North America, Europe, most of Europe, not just the EU, uh, most of Northeast Asia, agree among themselves about the rules they're putting uh, together and out there against China. And I think that's actually really interesting that if we're all comfortable uh, with the EU moving uh, against subsidies, if we're all comfortable with the US moving with certain sanctions, um, and on some of them we'll piggyback, on some of them we won't. Um, but if we don't challenge that, um, we're actually creating a de facto new trade group that I think is, is one first answer. Um, now, in addition to that, it is absolutely necessary to have alliances with other democratic, other developing countries, because those principles will only live as long as we try and spread them um, to, to some of our best trade partners, especially where growth happens. So especially in Asia, uh, but not just, of course. And I think we need to base that not on geopolitics. Uh, we need to base that on core economic principles. There needs to be an argument made that markets are better for recipient countries, markets are better for the world, uh, and they work better. Um, one of the problems with that, and one of the problems currently, is that the world is seeing China um, at a state where it's, it's pre-spend, everything it could pre-spend on its industry, but it hasn't kind of collapsed and had to pay for the for the wastage it's created the past 20 years of debt, of industrial policy that doesn't work in many cases, in, in, in airplanes, for example, or even in auto, they haven't done such a good job. Um, and so there needs to be a little bit of preaching around the value of markets beyond our own uh, kind of EU-US-centric um, discussion here. And I think that happens, like Heinat said, and, and Rob, for that matter, that happens through other trade alliances. So you have a core and you've got a core of countries that trade between themselves, in fact, and have the same rules. And I think a lot of that can actually be achieved around the OECD. I would like the OECD to be revived more than a trade NATO to be revived because competitive neutrality, because concepts around what free markets are and why they're good lives there. So I would love for Australia to do a lot in its, uh, in its tenure um, to, to revive the institution uh, and then push that to other countries through trade alliances. We've done that with Vietnam, we've done that for, with a number of, of countries in Asia and the rest of the world. I think we need to do much more of that. And I need, we, need, we need to do it in a non-anti-China way because that argument is not received well for the moment and we need to acknowledge that. And I agree that the Build Back Better Word initiative is actually pretty good at just saying we need to have a positive argument and we need to put that to the word. Um, so those are the main, you know, those are the main addition. I actually agree with parts of, of what both Rob and, and Reinhardt are saying. Um, but I need, I think we need to, we need to do a better job at explaining why market work to the world, to our own constituencies for that matter, uh, because a lot of them are doubting markets because of China and because of those distortions. Um, and, and be confident that it actually delivers us better results. Fantastic. Now, before you before you respond directly to Rob Reinhardt, I'm gonna I'm gonna put some context in because of course you and I have both been sanctioned uh, by the Chinese Communist Party for standing up uh, for human rights in China, and um, various of the points that Agatha raised there, I think, uh, address various elements of this. There is, of course, still a challenge, and I don't. By the way, this is not just a question for Germany. This is also a question uh, for Japan for different parts of US industry, including the financial services, as you'll know, Rob, um, and for many others around the world, as to how do we deal with the economic lure that is China? How do we deal with the fact that many of our industries, whether they're finances in the US, whether they're uh, you know, batteries for the UK, whether they're uh, various different forms of electronics for Japan, whether they're motor vehicles for Germany, how do we deal with the fact that we are uh, engaged in, a, in a, a state that has not only sanctioned you and I, Reinhardt, for speaking out on the grounds of human rights, but is directly challenging us uh, in uh, anti-competitive practices through trade. Reinhardt, over to you. Thank you, Tom. You're putting a big challenge to me. I, I kind of have to decide whether I want to spar with Rob or go for your question. I tried to do a, bit, a little bit of Do a bit of both. Do a bit of both. Um, Look, Rob pointed fingers at Germany. Uh, he doesn't know, probably, that 
I've been one of the more vocal critics of Germany's attitude vis-a-vis uh, -vis China trade and investment. But what I would still uh, like to point out is the fact that as the economic relationship between Germany and China that had been extremely advantageous for German industry over decades, as this has begun to shift, Germany has uh, begun joining forces more ambitiously with other European players in the pursuit of some of the autonomous uh, trade defense instruments or instruments to correct some of the imbalances that China has been uh, creating um, by not playing according to WTO rules. So, so uh, uh, we, we already have a, a new anti-dumping instrument in place. Uh, uh, we have a, a, an investment screening uh, mechanism in place that came into force last October and Germany was one of the three countries that initiated that. Uh, there uh, is work being done on, on anti-subsidy, on human rights due diligence, on banning products of forced labor, on the international procurement instrument, and on an anti-coercion instrument. And the interesting fact is that while the German Chancellor's Office had blocked some of these developments for years, uh, they're now playing ball. So there is more cohesion with regard to the understanding that Europe has to come together uh, on all these counts uh, than, than you would have had in the past. So, so uh, pointing fingers at Germany is probably uh, missing, missing the point. I would then go one step further and just argue, and, and I, I've hinted at that before, that we need to um, not just uh, restrict our collaborative efforts um, to, to the European Union, but to team up, as I, as I said, for instance, on um, anti-coercion with others. Uh, there I agree with what Agatha said. Um, the, um, the other question that, that you're asking, uh, Tom, about how to, um, how to avoid falling for the economic lure that's, that's the big question. And it certainly is a German question because Germany exports more, about twice as much uh, to, to China percentage-wise than the rest of the EU. Um, but uh, what, what you see, and, and that's a very interesting uh, development that uh, important industrial associations in Germany, in particular, the German Federation of Industry, the engineering industry, the electrical industry, they all have developed new strategies in dealing with China that are trying to tackle uh, these, uh, these uh, challenges. And I believe that uh, presently you have a couple of very important players in the German economy, uh, multinational corporations that still haven't found a way to deal with the lure. They have put too many eggs into that one Chinese basket, like Volkswagen, um, and, and now they find it very hard to turn around. But there are many more other players, uh, in particular the famous German Mittelstand, that is pursuing a different strategy. So I think even within Germany, there are two different realities uh, emanating. And uh, my last point is, um, I really feel that the... the uh, a paradigm, the NATO paradigm, um, sets out a, a perception of the situation that basically says, look, there are two camps to which you can belong. And I find it much smarter when Secretary Blinken says, we're not going to force our allies to choose a camp because only the strongest allies could opt for saying, okay, I forgo all my relationships with China because they're behaving so badly and I will be in your camp and end of the China story. That's, that's just uh, not a, a reasonable uh, idea. And the, the last point is this, to, to argue today that we should have a kind of TPP transatlantic agreement, before I start taking that seriously, I wanna hear 
how many Republican senators, how many Democratic senators are even going to listen to that advice? I think this is out of touch with the time. Okay, there are some there are some more challenging points there, and uh, for for many of us who are very very sorry that the U.S. pulled out of the TPP initially and now the CPTPP, uh, I think we're we're hoping that uh, things might change. Though I suspect Reinhardt, I'm afraid, uh, you are uh, incredibly uh, right that it is difficult to see a current U.S. administration or U.S. Congress uh, in either house uh, joining up. And now, Rob, before uh, you answer on various of those points, which I'm sure you will, I wanted to bring in, if I could, uh, somebody who I've always found uh, very, very interesting uh, on trade issues, David Hennig, who uh, is attending. David, perhaps you have a question for our guests. Uh, am, I, am I on? You are on. Right. Thank, thank you, Tom. Well, actually, for the, fir the first thing I want to say is this is actually exactly the debate we need and i'm delighted there's so much disagreement here because i actually you know in, li in listening to to this what i'm what is actually coming to my to my mind is that if that what we really need to do is address our address our own issues and then declare declare really to say look this is what we believe in um this is why we don't think China is playing by the rules. And that's what I think I want to, to ask the panelists is how do we do this? We've got, I think we've got possibly three problems here. One, our businesses want to be doing business in China. And actually, they don't necessarily, they've not been that good at wanting the EU and the US to resolve problems. So how do we get around that? How do we make businesses actually on our side in wanting to, to tackle this issue? Two, we can't decide, I think, if we want to intervene in the, in, in the economy in response to China or not, or celebrate the free market. How do we make that, deci that decision? Uh, and, th and, then, and, then, and, and then three, how do we resolve our own disputes? Because I'm convinced that there's too many EU-US disputes on trade. So how do we, basically, how do we change from a situation we have now where there are too many EU-US disputes, even though we're talking about China, and how do we put the emphasis back onto China? I think we all agree there are very bad Chinese, pre you know, there are illegal Chinese practices. I totally agree with that. But how do we do something, you know, how do we actually get to an agreement and to say, we are going to put those first. We're not going to put our own disputes first. We're going to, we're going to focus on that. You know, I'm less worried about the form of doing that. I was involved in TTIP. I'm really sorry that didn't happen. Like I was really sorry the US pulled out of TPP, but I don't think I'm ready to go back on that. What I'm ready to do is say, actually, we found a way to address our problems. Now we can really focus on this. So that's what, I'm, that's what I'd like to know from, from all the panelists, yourself, everybody else, Tom, is how do we take this forward? I'm delighted with this debate. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Well, there you go. The China Research Group doesn't shy from debate. We have contradictory opinions. We have different views. Uh, which we're delighted to raise. Agatha, before Rob comes back, and forgive me, Rob, but I know you've got plenty to come back on. Before Rob comes back, perhaps you can uh, look at uh, some questions on this, uh, Agatha, which is how do we, uh, how do we address the lure of China, uh, particularly from a, a business perspective? And how do we, as somebody who has uh, lived in both the United States and the European Union, how do we look at uh, resolving our own uh, arguments so that we can focus on the main event. Thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, I just wanted to jump in with four main ways to address the lure of the of the China market. First is, and I'm preaching for for, for my um, for, for my church here, uh, a little bit more communication and research. We did an internal exercise at the Rhodium Group looking at how much China's trade coercion hurts companies and hurts countries. And it's actually extremely limited in time and in terms of GDP uh, equivalent for, for, for economic activity and GDP. Um, so the first thing to say is actually trade coercion is very high profile in the media, but it doesn't hurt countries that much. It depends on the country, depends on the company, but most of the time it doesn't hurt them that much. So let's say this and let's be really frank about it because China doesn't want to hurt itself in the process most of the time. And so it's going to target small um, areas of, of economic interaction. Um, the second thing is to accept the lure for certain um, for certain sectors so that business knows that they're continue, they're going to continue to be able to do business 
where it's not problematic. It's not ethically problematic. It's not security problematic. It's not competitively problematic. That doesn't leave you know, an, an enormous amount, but it leaves, and we, we try to do that exercise. It, it leaves a good half or you know, two third of what we're trading and investing at the moment, pretty much open. And businesses are gonna be much more confident going against uh, China on certain cases and supporting their governments if they know they're still gonna be able to engage. So that's the third, second thing to do. Um, the third thing to do is, for politicians to be much clear that even if it's going to cost businesses, they're still going to be political about China and they're going to be more political about China. We've been missing this. And I think this is what Rob was trying to say to Haina and what Haina was trying to say back, uh, that we need to be more political in our approach to China instead of just business oriented. And that means sometimes forcing alignment on sanctions and accepting that the H&Ms of this work get you know, um, get targeted for a little while and, and for a certain uh, amount of um, amount of time and profits. Uh, but also sometimes for some of the instruments we're developing that governments are going to file cases uh, despite companies because companies have been shying away. They've been refusing to um, refusing to participate in certain trade cases. We're actually really well armed already uh, to deal with China distortions between the WTO trade defense instrument and things we have um, in, in our toolbox, but businesses don't want to participate. So being more political also means, you know what, if the long-term health, economic health of Europe is at stake or, or the US is at stake, um, we'll, we'll file cases for you because in the long run, instead of the next quarterly financial results, uh, it will be good for you. And finally, I think very important is to say, let's try to do its own bidding because in a lot of cases of coercion, um, and I'm thinking here about Taiwan and a trade um, a tourism ban uh, on Chinese tourists going to Taiwan a few years back. Um, countries and companies and firms actually react by diversifying. And it's a non-repeat game. Once you've put coercion in place against a country, Australia, Taiwan, other countries, um, you will have reactions, you will have diversifications, you will have um, you will have firms trying to find other alternatives. And so at the end of the day, we might end up more decoupled just because of China's coercion, which I think is quite interesting to, to note. So I'll leave it here. Well, Rob, your paper is on the China Research Group website, um, but you're exploring some of those ideas here with us now. Perhaps you can address some of the points that uh, David then raised there, because I think there is a real challenge here, and Agatha has just touched on it which is the lure of business is real for all of us and making sure that we focus on the main event. How can the United States and the European Union, amongst others, dial down uh, the rhetoric so that we manage to actually create a proper, and if you'll excuse the pun, united front uh, against uh, what we're seeing as a, a sort of a soft war against us? Sure. Uh, so just a couple of quick responses from before. You know, I just have to respond to one thing Reinhardt said, you know, we're somehow we're going to force people to choose a camp. No, absolutely not. What we need are a multi, and, and Agatha said this as well, we need, we need multiple institutions. So there's one institution that I'm proposing called a DATO, and nobody has to be in there. If you, wanted, if you want protection from the bully, you can join. But all these other organizations, the WTO, this broader trade alliance, it's really different. So nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. And the reason we can't force a camp is because the U.S. knows that we will ultimately not be the one that's chosen. We're at that point now where countries will choose China over the U.S. And if they're not there yet, they're going to be there in five years. And we, do we really want to live in that world? Because that's a very different world than we've lived in since 1945. I don't want to live in that world, but that's the world we're going to go to. Last, the second thing is Agatha mentioned China doesn't hurt that much. They certainly did back in the 2000s when they were really ramping this up and we lost, all of us lost a lot of our commodity-based production to China and it's less so now. Where China hurts us, and this is where we did a, a very big study that's funded by the Smith Richards Foundation, is on innovation. By them supporting less innovative companies in their sectors, they hurt more innovative companies. Ericsson is more innovative than Huawei. German solar panel companies were vastly more innovative than Chinese solar panel companies, but they put German solar panel companies out of business because of unfair practices. So what we miss on all this is how their, their attacks on, on more innovative companies. We're going to see this in electric vehicles. German and American and Japanese companies in electric vehicles are more innovative. 
Now, specifically um, to the question, how do we get countries to sort of go along with this when they're <clears throat> when their business class is saying, no, please, please, we need to, we need to sell. And, and the really only way to think about that is it's a monopsony. China has a monopsony. They're a single buyer, if you will. And this is a prisoner's dilemma. It makes no sense for any country to do this on their own. That's why I give the U.S., and you would expect me to do this, I give the U.S. an enormous amount of credit. Because once again, we went out and put our uh, our bacon in the fire, if you will. We went out and took our losses to help to make the global economy a better place. We should have had more support to do that. I think ultimately, if we get enough countries to band together and say, okay, we're all going to do this, you know, with some limits to it. We're not going to be fighting about maybe textiles or some of these other things, but with some limits, then we're going to be able to go forward. And that, Reinhardt, by the way, was my critique of Germany. And just to be clear, I have great respect for you and Tom on, on what you've done and the stances you've taken. So it's not about that. It's about the fact that China, that Germany is not as willing to be play hardball as they should be. We saw that in the G7. If Germany had stood up in the G7 and worked with the U.S. and others, we could have had an alignment where we say, okay, we're all going to be linking arms and then who is China going to punish? The answer is they're no, not going to punish anybody because they can't. Right, Reinhardt, I'm going to build on that and I'm going to, I'm going to bring you back in, if I may. But I'm going to bring you back in with a question that uh, Sandra Khaduri has asked uh, to everybody, which is uh, based on the G7 question that Rob just raised. So I think it's a, I think it's a good one to bring in. Because uh, didn't all the June summit, she says, G7, USEU, NATO set out several areas to strengthen in the face of Chinese competition and confrontation, including trade rules, forced labor, espionage. Weren't these plans of action sufficient and now just need to be implemented? Or do you think there's more than that that's required? Well, I, I don't think that uh, the G7 plans were at all sufficient. Uh, for instance, with regard to climate change, which is going to be one of the main security and economic challenges for the next, I don't know, 100 years, G7 accomplished basically nothing. Everybody regurgitated their old empty promises and, and, and they, uh, nations were haggling over who, who will pay up the, the pro for the promises they made uh, uh, in, in Paris uh, six years ago. Uh, so, so certainly the G7 was not sufficient, but it was a great breakthrough, I would say. In, in concept, in, in orientation, because it because of two factors. One is that the uh, Biden administration signaled, it understood, it had to work with allies and not, to, not just uh, behave as if we were the Delian Federacy in Greek antiquity, where everybody's called uh, a federate, uh, but only Athens calls all the shots. That's not how uh, our alliance is gonna work in the future because um, uh, of the, the transformations that have happened on the ground. Whereas on the European side, I saw a great deal more willingness to really engage and to really shoulder that uh, responsibility. So, so I, uh, the G7, even though un, uh, unsatisfactory, uh, made me um, positively uh, inclined. Um, however, there's there's one thing that that uh, bothers me a little bit, and also partly in our conversation, there's always, to some degree, this this notion of the inexorable rise of China, the the invincibility uh, of China's march forward. And I don't believe in that for a second. And I think that's one of the biggest successes they've had with their propaganda that a lot of people have started believing in that. And, and unfortunately, my chancellor to some degree believes in that. And I think that's about uh, one of the reasons why it's about time that somebody else takes over. Um, uh, I believe uh, if, we don't, uh, if we don't build uh, on the strength of our own societies and our own economies, uh, uh, 
uh, we're, we're not going to um, be able to stand, stand up to China, but we have to reinvigorate uh, some of our institutions by changing them. I mean, somebody asked about the, uh, David Hennig asked about the free market. I would argue, and maybe this is a bit provocative, David, but there's not going to be a free market if we don't understand that it has to be a free and fair market. Uh, to some degree, we underestimated the, the necessity to have fair markets, and we underestimated the necessity to have industrial policy to counter some of the uh, industrial policies. And, and I fully subscribe to what Agatha said. Uh, in my words, she said, politics must rule on some of these issues uh, if they are of geopolitical relevancy. And I, I, I think that is true. And then there is one more element I would want to bring to the table uh, as a part response to your question, Tom, about how do we move beyond the lure? Looking at India-EU relations, I, I wonder, and, and similar things could probably be said for other uh, international partners of the EU too. I sometimes wonder whether we are investing enough in building those relationships and, and, and uh, mining the potential of such relationships. Um, we, we have relied for too long on, on the growth promise of China, and we have not yet re realized that this invitation to the Chinese market may turn out for some players to, to be an invitation into a mousetrap, and that we need to develop other partnerships. And there I would emphasize a need to work more ambitiously with the African Union, with ASEAN and with China, uh, sorry, with India. Reinhardt, thank you very much. I'm, we've got about eight minutes left and there's an, any number of different questions that I could ask you now. So I'm just gonna build on Howard's question to ask for a few closing points because the reality is that the global supply chain is interconnected and Reinhardt, I happen to agree with you that uh, the, uh, the rise of China is oversold, but quite when and what that means is yet to be determined. But let's be, let's be realistic that we're seeing a changing demographic, we're seeing a, a changing uh, growth level, we're seeing a lot of things that are causing, frankly, I'd, I'd rather have the problems that we have in Berlin or London today than the problems that they have in Beijing. I know which country I'd prefer to be leader of. The, uh, and, and the reality is that I think that's only going to get more, more so in coming years. But if we look at the interconnected nature of the world, as Howard Zhang puts it, and the way in which China is a key part of all of that, how do you see the world changing realistically over the next 20, 30 years? Uh, perhaps, uh, Rob, you'd beginning our close down by having a look at that. Where, where are we going forward here? Yeah, so um, as Yogi Berra once said, uh, um, it's really hard uh, uh, to, to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, I'm also reminded of the CIA annual, annual report where they look at the future of the world. And I think it was in the year 2000. It could have, I don't know what year it was, but right around, they just completely ignored the rise of China. So even smart people would get, obviously get this wrong. Let me suggest sort of two things. One is, just the fact that we have integrated supply chains in China doesn't mean we should keep them the same way. And I think where we make a mistake is to say, well, we'll just keep those or we'll completely decouple. Neither of those answers are viable or correct, but we should be thinking about decoupling more. I 100% agree with Reinhardt. We just issued a paper on the importance of US-India relations. We need to have much stronger ties with India, much better trade relationships, diplomatic relationships. We need to have more of the supply chain in India. So I think that's one of the things that's gonna happen over the next 20 years is you're gonna see sort of less of a monopoly on, on supply chains. There'll be other countries like India and other countries in Southeast Asia, maybe even Africa if they can sort of get their act together. And I think that'll be good for the world. It'll certainly be good for some of these lower income countries that need to really move up. That's number one. Number two, I think China is gonna be much, much stronger. I think it's a mistake to argue that China is not gonna be strong because of their demographic issues. It's uh, a lot of what we should worry about is per capita income. And I don't see any evidence 
that that's going to slow down. And then finally, their big push is, I, a lot of people miss this, they waste an enormous amount of money. I, I, maybe they waste half of what they invest. Maybe it's three quarters. But that dwarfs, that quarter dwarfs what we invest in the U.S. And so they're going to continue to make progress. They're, they're going to look like Korea, I think, at some point in terms of advanced technology. Korea went from a laggard copier to a global leader. I don't see any reason why in 20 years China's not a global leader in most advanced technology sectors. And then we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. That's not to say that the US and Europe and Japan are gonna to go to nothing. I don't believe that either, but China's gonna be a global leader and that's gonna have significant implications. Fantastic, thank you very much. Agatha, give us your hey, predictions. You've got a few couple well, of minutes, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm optimistic on two counts and I'm neutral on one. Uh, I'm actually more optimistic than Rob on China's situation. We, uh, we, we follow China's macroeconomy and we are really pessimistic about its ability to continue investing the amount it's investing, especially in industrial policy uh, into the future. The key question, of course, is, uh, is it, you know, is it going to slow down in five years or 15? If it's in five years, we can all survive. We're, you know, take a, a good sip of water and, and we'll make it through if it's in 15. We have a very big problem. Uh, but in any case, it can't go on forever because the economic rules of nature are gonna um, are gonna intervene. So that's the first thing to say. And I do think that um, we're gonna get a break uh, in, in the next five to 10 years. That's my that's my prediction uh, in terms of the competitive pressure. Um, and it will be more, it's not that there won't be competition anymore. It's just that China will play by more similar rules because it won't be able to and can afford to play by, uh, by the rules it's playing at the moment. Second kind of optimism is Europe's reaction, US reaction. We're reacting and I like that. And our firms are reacting and like, like that. I see uh, amazing players, industrial players, um, actually gearing up for competition and that's all we need. And if we add that to the measures we're putting in place, defensive measures we're putting in place, I think there's good hope there that we'll, we'll make the 15 years, even if it's 15 years um, that's coming. My key neutral or question mark is the rest of the world. How do we keep a place beyond Europe, beyond China, beyond the US. Um, and this is where uh, it's a real open question for me. Fantastic, thank you very much. Reinhardt, over to you. You have about a minute left, I'm afraid. I've been slightly too- Yeah, I tried, just with my tried time. to put three arguments in, in one minute. I believe that China's political system with, with its continuous centralization of decision-making powers is going to undermine its economic success story. Uh, secondly, I believe that a lot depends on whether we are able to restore the attraction of the shining city on the hill. Uh, we've lost that attraction uh, over the last uh, couple of years. And the, the third uh, question is, will we understand that only if we offer a positive perspective to all the developing nations around the globe that also want to have agencies, we will be able to stand up to China. Will we understand that or will we just defend our own back? Well, look, these are some really important questions. And as David Hennig quite rightly put it, this argument or this debate is one that we're going to have to have a lot in uh, weeks and months to come. Now, there's a lot further that we need to go before uh, we conclude it. But I have to say, uh, hearing Rob, hearing Reinhardt and hearing Agatha speak about it gives me great hope that we will come up with some interesting ideas and challenge the bad ones and, and, and really have a rough debate, which is, after all, what a free society is all about, which is why I am still long on the United States, long on Europe and long on the United Kingdom. I am absolutely delighted that you've all been here now. My last point is merely to say uh, we are going to have another session on uh, the 5th of July. Let me just check my notes. I've managed to lose the piece of paper I've managed to scribble it on. So it's the 5th of July and we've got a session on. Oh, there we go, Julia. Been brilliant. 7th of July. I'm an idiot. There we go. At five o'clock. Thank you very much. And it's on the Indo-Pacific. And it was with the wonderful Michael Oslin. For those of you who don't know, Misha Oslin is brilliant. He presents a podcast called uh, The Pacific Century, which uh, I've appeared on occasionally. And it's absolutely wonderful. And he's a thinker and writer. And by the way, if you watch, if you're into samurai stuff from Japan, he has also done various movies 
in which he is the uh, historian expert in them. So uh, Michael Oslin will be interviewed by Claire Coutinho, a fantastic new member of parliament, absolute brilliant uh, colleague of mine on uh, the 7th of July at five o'clock. And all of this will also be told and turned into a podcast. So please, the usual rules apply. Follow us on Twitter, download our podcasts, check on the website. Thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. To Rob, to Reinhardt, to Agatha, you've been absolutely brilliant and I couldn't thank you enough. Good night. Thank you, everyone.